0: Alone? Didn't Dante the Pilgrim wake up once alone in a dark wood? And yet here he is again at the walls of Dis, alone. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, in which we are walking through Dante's masterwork, comedy, passage by passage. And we are in Canto 8. We're in the fifth circle of hell. We're amongst the wrathful. Well, we're kind of in a borderland. We'll more about that in a minute. Between the wrathful and the next rung of hell. And if you remember, in the last episode of this podcast, Virgil had been summoned up to the walls and gates of Dis by the fallen angels who want to confer with him. And they say that Virgil should send the pilgrim back the way he came. So we're going to pick it up with the pilgrim who has been faced with the truth that Virgil has to leave him alone. Oh, my dear leader who more than seven times has brought me back to safety and saved me from the deep dangers that have pressed against me, do not leave me, I said. How I am undone. If the further passage is barred from us, let us quickly go back in our own footprints together. And that lord who led me there said, Fear not. No one can stop our passage since it's been granted by such a one. Wait here for me. Let your tired soul be comforted and fed with good hope, for I will never leave you in the underworld. So my sweet father went off and abandoned me, and I remained in doubt, so much that yea and nay fought in my head, I wasn't able to hear what he proposed to them. But he was not long among them there before they tried to knock each other out of the way to get back inside. Our adversaries then closed the gates in my lord's face. He stayed outside and turned back to me with faltering steps. His eyes were on the ground and his brow shaved of all its baldness. He spoke in sighs, who has confounded me at the houses of sorrow? And he said to me, You, because I am irritated, don't get dismayed. No matter how they busy themselves inside to prevent our way, there is nothing new in their insubordination, for they showed it once before at a less secret gate that to this day is without any defenses. You already saw the dead riding. On this side, already down the slope, passing through the circles without an escort, comes one who will open the city for us. And that's the end of the canto. We are in a place in which a canto has stopped mid-action. Let me just say that there are four parts to this passage. I just kind of want to take them piece by piece. First the pilgrim, then Virgil, then the pilgrim again, and then Virgil again, back and forth. And then there's a fifth point I want to make at the end. So let's get to it. First up, we start with the Pilgrim, who says, Oh, my dear leader, who more than seven times has brought me back to safety and saved me from the deep dangers that have pressed against me, do not leave me. Let's just pause here for a minute. What's happened, remember, is, as I said, the fallen angels have said that this one, the Pilgrim, needs to go back. You know, would they invited Virgil to stay with them? It's unclear whether they're doing that because they think he deserves to be punished because he's dragged a living soul down this far, or when they just want to have a big party in Hell and Virgil should be a part of it. It's unclear exactly what they want to do with Virgil, but nonetheless, here they are, and Virgil's got to go speak to them. And I made a lot in the last episode that we are here starting to leave a Virgilian landscape, and these are the walls of Dis, and this is as far as Aeneas gotten that kind of stuff. I want to kind of focus on the emotional resonance in the passage this time. So when the pilgrim says, my dear leader, who more than seven times has brought me back to safety, you might be tempted to say, well, you know, he's flattering the old boy, the old poet, and he's just saying seven times. Nope, let's count them off. Canto one, line 49, the three beasts. Canto two, line 130, his courage falling away after he's heard the story of Beatrice, and Virgil pumps him back up in and gets him going. Canto 3, line 94, Karen and his boat. Canto 5, line 21, Minos. Canto 6, line 22, Cerberus. Canto 7, line 8, Plutus. Canto 8, which we're in, line 19, Flegius and his boat. And finally, Canto 8, which we're still in, line 41, Filippo Argenti rising up out of the muck to threaten the boat. There they are. There's eight times I just named to you. More than seven times. Of course, it sounds very resonant. Seven, right? The holy number, seven, and the number of creation and all of that. And many, many commentators, particularly early commentators, have commented on this as an allegorical reference to the perfection of Virgil's earthly or terrestrial saving from the seven days of creation. And Virgil is able on an earthly scale to save Dante at this point. And without of heavenly messenger who's on his way but nonetheless we can count off eight times that virgil has saved dante the pilgrim so far and we should just pause when we say that i may have made a bit about virgil and he doesn't know about christian theology and he is not necessarily the most reliable guide and this passage is the one i would point to about not necessarily a reliable guide most presently and most forthrightly but nonetheless virgil has also been a good guide Eight times he saved the pilgrim so far, and we're only in the eighth canto of Inferno. There's a lot to go. So, he says, you've saved me. Do not leave me, the pilgrim says, for I am undone. If the further passage is barred for us, let us quickly go back in our own footprints together. So, apparently, the gate of hell was right. Abandon every hope, all who enter here. Because at This moment, it appears at least to my eyes that the pilgrim abandons hope. And I think, as you know from the last episode of this podcast, the poet too abandons hope or loses a little faith. How about this? The writer allows his own emotional landscape to enter the poem as its plot we are coming to the end of the Virgilian landscape, the end of what Virgil can do in terms of how he imagined the afterlife for this poem. The poet is having to step out on his own here at the Gates of Dis. This has got to all, I think, be lying behind this passage emotionally for the writer. And yet the genius here is that the writer's own emotional landscape, the doubt of leaving my master and my master is leaving me and I'm being abandoned and what am I? I going to do and how am I going to write this poem and all that kind of stuff, that emotional landscape has been translated over into the poem itself. And this is why I think we've come across a giant shift because this is an amazing moment when you can take your own writerly doubts and encode them into the plot itself so that they make sense for the pilgrim while having all of their resonance possible for you. I think that this is part of the genius of what the poem is about so that the pilgrim here says i'm undone and let's just go back let's get out of this together Mm, i think there's much going on there about the poet behind the passage so what does virgil say and that lord who led me there said fear not like an angel descending from heaven fear not No one can stop our passage since it's been granted by such a one. I'm sure you heard this. This sounds very tortured in my English translation. And I did it this way on purpose because the verbiage in the medieval Florentine is actually tortured too. It's a little difficult. The verbiage torques around. The clauses twist a bit. I think the point here is that there's an irony running under this passage. And let me explain it to you. Virgil really doesn't know what he's talking about. No one can stop our passage since it's been granted by such a one. He still has this hazy notion. Remember, I told you he can't even mention God early on, and he has this hazy notion about this inimical or hostile force harrowing hell and Jesus off the cross, but this this weird vision he's got going on. And remember I told you you can't really understand theology properly. With that one exception when he names Michael and the angels fighting back against the demons. Okay, but we're going to say that's a slip in the poem and just blip past that. He's got this unclear notion of God. But here's the irony then. Virgil, with his unclear notion of God, since it's been granted by such a one, has more faith than our pilgrim. There's got to be some irony sitting under that, that Virgil knows help is coming, and Virgil knows they have to get through this gate, and they have to go on, and the pilgrim is saying, let's go back, let's go back, let's just return, (laughs) let's go back the way we came, and Virgil is saying, hey, this is all ordained, this has been granted by such a one. So even with his hazy notion of what God is, to use the terms of the poem, what God is, Virgil is showing more faith than the pilgrim. And maybe, I don't want to push it too far, but, and maybe the poet too. It may be another node of the poet's emotional landscape entering into the poem itself. Virgil goes on, but wait for me here. He sounds so mm, comforting here, but wait for me here. Let your tired soul be comforted and fed with good hope, for I will never leave you in the underworld. That's such a gorgeous phrase, nel mondo basso in the deep world, in the down world, Mondo Paso. That's so beautiful and evocative because it's exactly what the pilgrim needs. The pilgrim and the poet may be stepping beyond a Virgilian landscape, and yet what they still need is for their mentor, their father figure, to say, I'm not going to leave you. You may be stepping beyond me, but I'm still here with you. Who of us wouldn't want to hear that from our own fathers? You may be doing more, doing better than I'm doing. You may be pushing farther than I've ever pushed. You may be more successful than I've ever been. But you know what? I'm here with you for every step of it. That has got such beautiful human emotion to it. And then, well, and then the next thing happens. After Virgil promises never to leave the pilgrim in the underworld, the pilgrim says, or the poet says behind the pilgrim, so my sweet father went off and abandoned me. Virgil, in all of his comforting fatherliness, has abandoned the pilgrim. And that's how it's stated in the Florentine, abandoned me. Surely, we can see behind this the emotional resonances of Dante's own father dying when Dante was still young. Surely, behind all of this is sitting the emotional weight. And earlier, remember, in this very passage, we had the reference, the one reference to Dante's mother. And here, we have Virgil, the sweet father, going off and abandoning me. It's all got to have that developmental psychology running underneath the text that the poet is allowing to enter the story brilliant and i remained in doubt the pilgrim says so that yea and nay fought in my head i wasn't able to hear what he proposed to them let me tell you also this is brilliant I wasn't able to hear what he proposed to them. Here's why it's brilliant. This is great narrative point of view. This is worthy of, you know I'm going to come back to it, Henry James, <laughs> because the point of view is unified to the pilgrim. I wasn't able to hear what he proposed to them. In a looser point of view, if, let's say, a less secure writer was writing this, they would, a less secure writer would follow Virgil up to the adversaries, the demons, and we'd hear the conversation. Instead, we stay back with the pilgrim. I wasn't able to hear what he proposed to them. And so everything happens from a unified point of view at this point. This is also very modern narrative technique. Again, an older text or a less secure modern text wouldn't be that worried about the unity of point of view. Here, however, it's unified into the pilgrim. I wasn't able to hear what he proposed to them. We don't know what happens. And he was not long among them. I mean, we could see it. We could see Virgil ahead of us, right? Up on the path, talking to these demons, the walls of Disbind, And we could just see it in our head. And and there's the poor pilgrim standing back there, Shivering. He was not long among them before they tried to knock each other out of the way to get back inside. Our adversaries then closed the gates in my Lord's face. And that the pilgrim is left out of all of this, that the pilgrim is not offered anything here about exactly what was said, is again, a unified point of view. Uh, I think it may be even more than that. But let me say two things about this bit. First of all, when it says our adversaries closed the gates in my Lord's face, what it literally says is, in the Tuscan or in the Florentine, is that the adversaries close the gates against my lord's chest. This is important, perhaps, for what Robert Durling, a Dante scholar, sees as a schematic or a thematic or a formal device in Inferno. What Durling claims is that the Inferno is based on the body, and that as we move down the inferno, we move down the body. For example, limbo is all about memory and the mind. Francesca and her sorrows and her lust are all about the eyes, what I saw. Chaco is all about the mouth and being a glutton and also perhaps talking too much. The avaricious are pushing boulders with their torsos. And so in Durling's formalistic understanding of the poem, we are descending down the human body. And we've come both to the avaricious and the angry, to the chesty, the torso-y part of the poem. And believe me, there's much to be said for this schematic, (laughs) much to be said, because we are going to descend much lower and much fouler in the body in the cantos ahead. So again, Derling sees this bodily schematic in the whole Inferno itself, working it out as one of the structural devices inside Inferno, and it shouldn't—he—he he claims we shouldn't be surprised that we're in the torso section, and so they shut the gates in my lord's chest against my lord's chest because we've been—we've now moved down the body to mm, about heart level. They don't think of the heart as the center of emotions. They think of it as a lake that holds the blood. They think more of the liver and even the kidneys as the centers of emotion. But we are descending toward the centers of emotion, which says to us again, the emotional resonances inside this bodily poetic space would be be becoming fuller. Oh, I almost tripped as I said it. Would be becoming fuller. All right, so Virgil stays outside, and he turns back with faltering steps, con passi rari, with faltering steps. Remember? Previously, Virgil has had a spell. This is, you know, you can't you can't unwill this. This has been willed where what is willed is what is done. And he's thrown his spell at Caron, and he's thrown his spell at Minos, and he's thrown goopy mess in Cerberus' mouth, and he's put Plutus down, and he's put Phlegius down, and Virgil's always got his little spell going. And I told you earlier, there will come a point where his spell doesn't work. This is it. Virgil's blocked. He turns around and turns back to the pilgrim. And then this Tercet, which I just love, his eyes were on the ground and his brow shaved of all its boldness. And he spoke in sighs, who has confounded me at the houses of sorrow? This is the first time we see Virgil worried in this entire descent into hell. This is the first time we've seen him worried in any way. Poor Virgil, how the mighty have fallen here he is blocked unable to get forward unsure eyes on the ground those physical details brow shaved of all its boldness all he's just absolutely feeling it in his body that he's blocked body as if Virgil a shade has a body but you know what I mean he's feeling it as physical resonances and it's being stated that way in the poem that this is this is absolutely hitting Virgil and for the first time we're making a true move into Virgil's emotional space not just the pilgrims again huge change in the poem so let's finish the passage and he, Virgil, said to me, You, because I'm irritated, don't get dismayed. No matter how they busy themselves in such prevent our way, there is nothing new in their insubordination, for they showed it once before at a less secret gate, that to this day is without any defenses. Notice that Virgil is, hmm, worried, confused, browed brow down, shaved of his bone, <laughs> his eyes cast down on the ground, to himself. But when he then approaches the pilgrim, He's very full of, I don't know, he's very full of certainty. You, because I mean, you're irritated, don't get dismayed, no matter how they busy themselves inside to prevent our way. This is surely more of going back to that line for, I will never leave you in the underworld. Virgil is becoming increasingly a father figure. And this would be what a good father would do. A good father might be worried, let's say, to pay the bills or to ma- to make the mortgage this month. But a good father wouldn't throw that necessarily on their child. Instead, they'd say, hey, let's buck up. We got to do this together. We got to get through this. We, we're we're going to do it. We're going to succeed. Don't worry. Right? That's a good dad. And that's what Virgil's being. He is internally divided and he is internally confused, but externally he's very much saying to his child, the pilgrim Dante, let's go, let don't be scared. They did this already before at a less secret gate, you know the gate of hell, abandon all hope, all that stuff. They showed it once before before a less secret gate to this day is without any defenses. So apparently we know, remember from Canto 4 from Limbo, that Virgil witnessed Christ's harrowing of hell. So apparently there was some kind of demonic defense against the gates of hell when Christ descended off the cross and came down into the underworld. And Virgil witnessed it and maybe witnessed their defenses at that gate, the Abandon Every Hope gate. Wow. Do you realize what just happened? Virgil just got a backstory. Virgil's character is becoming deeper, more nuanced. It's got internal and external space. It's more caring for I will never leave you in the underworld. And there's a backstory here. There's no precedent for this. There's no precedent for Virgil having witnessed the herring of hell and witnessed demons, you know, guarding the gate and defending the initial gate of hell. Dante is now feeling freer, Dante the poet, freer to give Virgil a Full backstory. And we're getting hints of it. And we're getting hints of Virgil's internal landscapes. This is so wild. And the last four lines of this canto, you already saw the dead writing. Not, not as if the writing is dead, uh, maybe dead as in it, it can't move or it's inconsequential, but dead as in the writing about the dead. The writing that is so scary, it's kind of deadly. And then Virgil says a curious bit. On this side, already down the slope, passing through the circles without escort comes one who will open the city for us. Okay. Two things. As I've already said, this is the first time we leave our pilgrim and his guide suspended in the action at the end of a canto. We've Done this a little bit and then we came upon the great enemy plutus or right before we come to francesca and the last and then we descended to a place without any light so that's a little bit of hint of what's to head but this is different so that's a change in the poem that there is a narrative through story that's driving over the edge of a canto and driving into the next into the next canto itself okay that's the first thing and The second and much tougher thing: How does Virgil know this? How does he know that there's something coming, someone coming down the slope, passing through the circles with the who will open the city for us? Is this as is this like that previous moment in which Virgil knew where the stars were? And I said, Yeah. How does Virgil, down in a cave in the ground, know where the where the stars are does does Virgil see it in his mind there let me just say that the commentators have proposed two solutions one Virgil sees it in his mind so Virgil sees already this happening and he sees this figure coming toward him and i should tell you not too much for Farther down the path in Inferno, we're going to come across a shade who will say that the damned do see the future in a very specific way. And the reason this is not to play the card before it happens, but the reason this is, is it increases their suffering because that way they can anticipate the last judgment. So they see the future much more specifically, maybe even than when they were alive, because it's, it's torturing them with the notion of the coming last judgment. So, is that true is that Virgil as one of the damned can see a little bit into the future and so sees this pa- this this figure coming down hell or did Beatrice promise this back in canto 2 when we had that whole discussion and Beatrice came to Virgil and promised you know to that he that she would I guess offer help if he went and helped the pilgrim Dante but she never promised it that that anyone would come and help them it's curious both answers seem, both questions seem to have um, uh, answers that are not satisfying. Does Virgil see it in his mind or did Beatrice promise this in Canto too? They seem weird. And it's a curious aporia. Aporia is a gap. Or in literary citizen, an aporia is a gap or something that is left out of a text, an intentional hole in a text. It is an A curious aporia in the text that Virgil seems to know things like this when he otherwise couldn't. I wonder, and this is just, I don't haven't read anyone ever say this before, but I wonder, is the text, or is Virgil, or is the poet testing my faith? (laughs) I know that sounds wild, but this passage, it strikes me, is a test of faith. It's a test of Dante the Pilgrim's faith. Essentially, he fails, except for Virgil continuing to buck him up. It's a test of Virgil's faith. He passes. He knows someone's coming. They can't just leave us here, even though I'm full of doubt. So uh, I know somebody's got to be coming. But is the passage also testing my, the reader's faith? That is, I will take it on faith that Virgil knows what will already happen. Maybe never seen anybody actually posit that. And it may be too modern a psychology for the passage to put that meta reading down on it, that the passage is making a back comment toward me, the reader. it always sits in the back of my mind as, hmm, is the poem testing me? You know, the old idea that narrative and creative literature is the willing suspension of disbelief eh, from Coleridge. And that willing suspension of disbelief is not on the part of the artist, but on the part of the reader. I, the reader, willingly suspend my disbelief in order to let a writer go on with what a writer has to In other words, I don't sit around and quibble with, I don't know, Toni Morrison for the way she writes Beloved. Instead, I accept the slipstream of the narrative itself. I know that there was no one named Setha. I know that this story may have some historical resonances, but yet Morrison is filling it with her own art to write Beloved. Mm, the willing suspension of my disbelief in order to read the novel Beloved. And maybe here, although well, this is many centuries before Coleridge, Maybe here I'm being asked for the willing suspension of my disbelief. That is, instead of my quibbles about how does Virgil know this, the poet is testing me a little bit. Do you trust the poem that you're reading? Maybe. And so let's pass on to the fifth point. Where are the wrathful? what circle are we in where's the damned we've seen some fallen angels but where where are the damned what what wait what circle are we in the fifth circle still i don't know actually are we on the brink of the sixth circle i don't know actually the break in the poem at the at, that we talked about endlessly earlier in this podcast appears to me to be a shift over tectonic plates. We have moved from a Virgilian plate, just to use a modern metaphor, to a new plate, which means the poet is going to see Virgil better. Standing on another plate, the poet can look back at the previous tectonic plate, the Virgilian plate, and see Virgil as more human, more comforting, wiser, More fatherly, less grandiose, with an interior space, with his own set of doubts, with his own set of foibles, with his wisdom and his irritations in tow. It strikes me that from here on out, Virgil's interiority becomes more of a thematic of the poem itself. And so we have slipped over a tectonic plate, and we know that because we're not just counting off the circles of hell anymore. Instead, we're sitting here with the, to use a modern word, psychology of the pilgrim and his guide. Remember back in Canto 1, when Dante first meets Virgil, he says to Virgil, I got the high style from you. Remember this? Are you Virgil and the great poet? And I got the high style from you. And I made a big deal about high style versus new style and low style and Beatrice's soft and general words and all that kind of stuff. Part of slipping over the tectonic plate Maybe that we're losing the high style. That may be part of that Virgilian plate that we just left behind. And it's not that the poem breaks, or not necessarily Boccaccio's story that somehow, I don't know, the poem's in a drawer somewhere, and someone went and found it and brought it back to the poet. But rather, we may be watching the artistic style developing such that we've come across onto another tectonic plate, and the high style is now behind us. Because believe me, from here on out, the Inferno will certainly not be much in the high style. And it's going to become more self-conscious about poetry and the making of poetry, which means the poet's concerns and the poet's emotional landscape are going to enter the poem more and more. And those early bits, Canto 1 and Canto 2, they are the high style. I told you this earlier. Canto 2, the jump up to heaven, it's like so many classical works that start on earth and jump to heaven. Luke and Ovid, so many works do this. They start on earth, they jump to heaven. And that's what our comedy did. But now we are more settled into storytelling, into plot, into emotional landscapes. Virgil is becoming clearer, he's becoming more interesting, the pilgrim is actually going to become clearer and more interesting, as here, that the pilgrim wants to turn around. The pilgrim has been promised help, potentially, by the virgin herself. And yet the pilgrim, and maybe the poet, is willing to turn around, let's go back, follow our footsteps back, let's just cut our losses and get out of here. Amazing. So much resonance at the end of Canto Eight, as we leave our pilgrim and his guide standing still in front of the walls of Dis, one full of doubt, one full of mm, something like faith, one seemingly in a quandary, one certainly appearing to be certain for the sake of his pupil or his son, as it were, since it does say my sweet father went off and abandoned me. We leave them in an extraordinarily human spot. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast Working with Dante. I hope you'll come back because we're going to cross on to Canto 9. And Canto 9 is going to show the rescue. Who's coming down that slope? Who's coming down it without an escort? How do the gates of the city get open? And then we will pass into Dis and forever be in the city of hell. Well, forever. Until the 34th Canto of Inferno. And be inside the city of hell all of the strangeness that happens inside of this, with the sinners who willingly and knowingly commit the sins they commit subscribe like this podcast i could use a comment drop right down there to the bottom of the apple podcast page you'll see a comment box you can leave a comment that would mean a great deal to the analytics and me too otherwise i will see you back for the salvation of Virgil and our pilgrim, in the next episode of Walking with Dante.